Father, we do praise you. You are the creator of the universe, and you are worthy of our praise. We confess that all of us have contributed to the demise of this world, and uh, we're sorry. We look at the world and the mess that it's in, and we ask you to help us. Help us to make a difference while we're here. But in the meantime, we are very, very grateful that we have this promise of the end. The way you are going to turn everything into good. This incredible promise, this hope that we look forward to. And, uh, and thank you for this incredible passage that we get to read this morning. Teach us from this passage. Stir up our hope. Prepare us so that we can be uh, salt and light while we're here as we long for your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And if you, it's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through Revelation verse by verse. And we are finally at the passage I've been longing to get to, okay? Because this is really the good news here. What will eternity be like. Now, I want to start out with a little video clip, and this is a silent video, so don't worry, there's not supposed to be any noise or anything like that. It's a very, uh, very uh, somber video that you will, it will remind you of a tragic event in our history. We all remember that, and it reminds us that this world is an absolute mess. Things are not getting better. As we've been walking through the book of Revelation, we see that things are going to get worse before they get better. This world is broken, and yet the most popular philosophy today is existentialism. And there's my question. Are you an existentialist? And you're saying, I don't know. I don't know what that is, right? Okay. An existentialist is one who lives in the present. Uh, existence over essence. You subjectively create meaning in a meaningless world. It is the philosophical handmaid of the postmodernist. And if you're still confused, Pepsi's slogan says it best. Live 
for now. That's existentialism. Live for now. By the way, I have an existentialist joke. The French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre was sitting in a cafe when a waitress approached him. Can I get you something to drink, Monsieur Sartre? Sartre replied, yes, I'd like a cup of coffee with sugar but no cream. Nodding agreement, the waitress walked off to fill the order and Sartre returned to work. A few minutes later, however, the waitress returned and said, I'm sorry, Monsieur Sartre, we are all out of cream. How about with no milk? You have heard of the idea, they say, that you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Have you heard that? It's absolutely not true. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said this, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. One example, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade in England left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. We are supposed to be focused on this passage that we get to read this morning. We long for Christ's return and the day when all sin and its effects are gone. We yearn for paradise, for Eden restored. We really crave eternity. Well, what will eternity be like? Let's look. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hmm. This is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. It is the bookend of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God's original plan God's ultimate plan. It is the culmination of God's plan. So what will eternity be like? Verses 1 and 2, we see that we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, I want to give some thoughts, actually answer some questions from the experts before we dive into this. But three thoughts from the, you know, that spring from this passage 
is the earth completely uh, destroyed? I mean, because when you think of this, okay, I kind of, this planet is messed up, but it's, it's kind of nice too, right? You know, I mean, there's some good and there's some bad in it. So what's going to happen? Are we to understand that this planet is going to be completely destroyed and a brand new one is made, or how is that going to work? Daniel Aiken, I think, says it well and, and gives what probably most scholars uh, think about this. He says, now, we should address an important question. Will God renovate the old creation as Romans 8, 19 through 22 seems to teach, or will he completely recreate a new creation as 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13 appears to affirm? This is not an easy question to answer. Might it be that there is something of a transformation of the old order through the destruction of the old order? I think we are on good ground to affirm some type of continuity between the old order and the new order, though the new will be radically superior. Perhaps the judgment of 2 Peter 3 is one of cleansing rather than total destruction. What we can say for certain is there will be a whole new reality, a new kind of existence in which all the negatives of the first world will be removed. All the discoloration by sin will be gone. And so perhaps it's not a completely brand new, but a refurbished, completely restored the way it's supposed to be. Second question, does heaven come down? We see this in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Does heaven come down? How are we to understand this? So another expert. Let's look at Grant Osborne and his thoughts on this, which I think are, are decent. He says... Moreover, the idea of a new heaven and a new earth also hints that the old dichotomy between the first heaven and the first earth will be no more. God will now dwell in the new Jerusalem, and heaven will be brought down to earth. In Revelation 7, 9 through 17, the saints will spend eternity in heaven, while in 21, 9 through 22, 5, they will spend eternity in the new Jerusalem and the final Eden. In other words, heaven and earth will be united into a larger reality. He says, moreover, in this last descent, heaven and earth are finally united. After chapter 21, 2, and 10, there is never again any from heaven to earth, for in the new heaven and new earth, they are one. Revelation places considerable emphasis on the heavenly temple. Now the heavenly temple descends from heaven to earth in the form of a city and becomes the eternal home of the saints. So heaven and earth become one place, so it seems. And then the last question that probably bothered me the most, what about the sea? Did you see that? In verse 1, he says, and there was no longer any sea. You know, I kind of like the ocean. What about the whales? No whales? What? Okay, but once again, perhaps... When we understand the way first century uh, thought was, uh, took place, it might help us. Paige Patterson uh, describes this. Listen to what he says. 
He says, many take the reference to the sea to be the usual metaphor of apocalyptic literature to the foment of civil and social orders presented as a seething and unruly sea. You see, back then, the sea, especially for non-seagoers, represented chaos. It represented uh, disorder. Then he quotes Alexander McLaren, the old uh, commentator, who says, now what is meant by this symbol is best ascertained by remembering how the sea appears in the Old Testament. The Jew was not a sailor. All the references in the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets to the great ocean, are such as a man would make who knew very little about it, except from having looked at it from the hills of Judea, and having often wondered what might be lying away out yonder at the point where sky and sea blended together. There are three main things which it shadows forth in the Old Testament. It is a symbol of mystery, of rebellious power, and of perpetual unrest. And it is the promise of the cessation of these things which is set forth in that saying, there was no more sea. There shall be no more mystery and terror. There shall be no more the floods lifting up their voice and the waves dashing with impotent foam against the throne of God. There shall be no more the tossing and the tumult of changing circumstances and no more the unrest and disquiet of a sinful heart. So perhaps it's speaking of the metaphor of the sea, not the actual sea, and that maybe we still will have whales in this refurbished planet. We're not sure. These are speculations. But what we do know from this passage and elsewhere is that the present earth is in the bondage of decay. The present earth is messed up. Look at Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. This is what we experience on a regular basis. This is why we need Terebinth ministry and other ministries like it to help change the evil and and so forth that's going on and help those who are being hurt by this messed up world. Look at Romans 8, 18 through 21. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Notice the personification of the planet. He says the creation itself, the earth itself, waits eagerly in expectation because it has been subjected to frustration. It wants to be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's where it is right now. The world is messed up. It's wrecked. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but someday it's all going to be changed. There's no more sin. There's no more problems, no more difficulties. The new earth will be full of joy, absolutely full of joy. I want you to turn to Isaiah 65. Remember, the book of Revelation is borrowing from Uh, so much of the Old Testament and especially the book of Isaiah. And we see section after section 
clearly pointing back to these uh, passages. And in Isaiah 65, verse 17, we see a clear, this is where uh, Revelation 21 is, is coming from. It says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. You see how Revelation 21 is taking from this passage? Now, Isaiah, when he's writing his book, he's seeing it from a long distance away, and he's kind of combining what we've seen in the millennium as well as the final age here that we're seeing in chapter 21. But he's putting it together so that we can see just how wonderful it's going to be. Skip down to verse 25. He says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. That's a reference to the serpent of Genesis 3 being subdued. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. But did you notice the emphasis on joy? Do you like joy? We experience joy in part now, sometimes overwhelmingly by the Holy Spirit but it's mixed with sorrow. The new earth will be pure joy with peaks you cannot even imagine and with no mixture of sorrow. That's what we look forward to in this beautiful new earth. And the new Jerusalem that it speaks of in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The new Jerusalem will be a holy and beautiful place. Isaiah 52, verse 1, calls the new Jerusalem, uh, it's, or, I'm, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 48, 35, renames the new Jerusalem Yahweh is there. Zechari- That's a great name for a city. Yahweh is there. <laughs> Zechariah 8, 3 calls it the city of truth. And Isaiah 52, 1 calls her to put on garments of splendor, which our passage describes as wedding garments. And so we will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. And the best part of it is verse 3, we will live in intimate communion with our God. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. We will live in intimate communion with our God. This is why we were created. This is the ultimate blessing. Now that is not so found in the, in the Quran. In the Quran, for Muslims, when it speaks of paradise, when it speaks of the, the end, ultimate end, it has, says nothing about a personal relationship with God or Allah, as they call him. It, says, it only talks about 
you know, living by a stream and having couches and virgins and all those kinds of things. But it says nothing at all, not one single reference to being with God. And yet this is what we see is the ultimate blessing, according to the Bible, that God will dwell with us and be with us and be our God. The ultimate blessing. This is why we're created. God's plan has always been to be with his people. You see it throughout the Bible. It begins with Adam and Eve, and it talks about how in the original creation, they walked with God in the cool of the day. There was supposed to be intimate communion with God. Then sin wrecked everything, but God didn't Get rid of this. His plan was always to be with us. And we see, like Enoch, it says, walked with God. We see Abraham, who's called the friend of God, speaking of the relationship that God desires to have with his people. Moses, it says, would enter into the presence of God, see a glimpse of his glory, and it made him shine where he had to put a veil over his face because God wants to have this kind of relationship. In the old covenant, the high priests, it says once a year could go into the very holy of holies. Now, there was this this, uh, veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and the holy of holies had the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God. Now, because of sin, there were rules and there was regulations and everybody didn't have the perfect communion that we're reading about here in this passage. But the high priest could go past the veil once a year with sacrifice. Representing God does want us to have that, but There's problems, there's difficulties, sacrifice needs to be made. And so we have a high priest, Ezekiel. He speaks of how God, because of the sin of Israel, he lifts up, his presence lifts up away from the temple, moves away from Jerusalem, but always signifying he's going to come back because God's plan has always been to be with his people. And then Jesus shows up, right? Who is God? Jesus is God. He shows up. He's there amongst the people. And he, when he dies on the, on the cross, what happens to that veil? Torn in two, signifying that all of God's people can go into the very holy of holies, experience the presence of God, but not like this that we're reading here. You see, he says very clearly in chapter 21, verse 3, that At this time, at the new heaven and the new earth, that's when God's dwelling is now among the people. And so there's this always this movement towards this. God then pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people. We get to experience incredible communion with God, don't we? But it's nothing compared to this. It's a taste of his goodness, a glimpse of his glory, but it's not the full deal until he comes back, and then till the new heaven and the new earth are created. But we see that this has always been God's plan. Even in the millennium that we read about, the thousand-year reign, Jesus will be with us, but somehow this verse, verse 3, is not fully experienced yet until the new heaven and the new earth are made. And then, and then, 
God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Osborne says this. Not just the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible has pointed to this moment. Since Adam and Eve lost their place in paradise and sin reigned on earth, the divine plan is prepared for the moment when sin would finally be eradicated and the original purpose of God when he created humankind could come to pass. This is the ultimate plan of God. Now, today, we experience them in part not fully until the end. At this point, Revelation 21.3, that's when we experience him fully and completely. As I said, we experience him in part now. We have incredible experiences of him now in part, but not fully until this moment. And so in the meantime, sometimes we experience what uh, people call the dark night of the soul. I don't know if you've ever had that, where you're living for God, you're seeking God, and yet at times it seems like he's a million miles away. Why is that? Why do those experiences take place? And it's because the full presence of God is not here yet. The psalmist in Psalm 42, why don't you turn there? Psalm 42, we see the psalmist who clearly his Life is focused on God, and yet he's experiencing one of these dark nights of the soul. Some people, when they have these experiences, they blame themselves. They think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. And of course, sin can become a a hindrance in our walk with God. But there are many times, even for those who are truly seeking after the Lord, where they experience this. Look what he says. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. With why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And notice, his heart is clearly right. He's seeking after the Lord. He hungers and thirsts for God, and yet he's not experiencing his presence So what does he do? He remembers the times when he did experience his presence, when especially when he gathered together with God's people and the shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. And that was enough to build the hope to know that someday he will again experience the presence of God. And the ultimate hope is that in the very end, we will always experience the presence of God. And there will never be any more dark nights of the soul. But in the meantime, we long for his return. You see, if we had it all now, we wouldn't want him to return. We'd be perfectly satisfied now. 
And so we long. I can't wait. <laughs> this is going to be a day. Now, he gives us those wonderful glimpses of his glory and the tastes of his goodness that sometimes are really overwhelming. And where you're like, whoa, God, this is awesome. He gives us those to remind us this is what's coming in full power. But guess what? It's just like a little water faucet compared to the fire hydrant that's coming. Okay? So we will live, though, in intimate communion with our God. And then finally, verse 4, we will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We will no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. No more sorrow. I want you to turn to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Kind of a fascinating passage. Once again, speaks of the now and not yet. The experience we can have in part, but won't fully have it until this new heaven and new earth come about. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this part of this passage was actually quoted by Jesus in Luke chapter 4, but he stopped right there. He actually stopped in mid-sentence here in his quotation, folds up the book and then says, this has happened today because Jesus is that one who the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord was put on him, and he proclaimed the good news and so forth. But notice where he stopped. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that was then and that's now. But then he continues in this passage, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that's not until Revelation 19. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. These parts, because of the Holy Spirit, can be experienced in part now, but not fully until this day. No more sorrow. You see, we were created for communion with God. That's what takes away the sorrow completely. Depression is unique to humanity. Many experience a darkness that they cannot overcome. And there is partial help in, uh, in this life with counsel, with medicine, with prayer. And the ultimate cure of depression is hope. Hope in the return of Christ And he will give you the strength to endure until then. And the promise of his coming brings that strength. But one day, there will be no more sorrow. It'll be gone forever. That's his promise. No more death. No more death. In fact, he's clearly once again referring back to Isaiah 25 for Israelites, Isaiah 25 was the ultimate chapter 
of the promise to come, the banquet feast that they longed for when Yahweh came down. Look what it says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. You're thinking, what is that shroud? What is that sheet? Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. No more death. Adrian Rogers said, death is only a comma to a Christian, not a period. Death is not the way it's supposed to be, but it is inevitable in this world. But it will be gone forever at this time. No more death and no more pain. No more pain. Think of that. No more pain. This is the eternity theodicy, the answer to the question, why would a God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? You see, the question is changed because in light of this. It has to only be, why would God allow pain and suffering for a time? Because he is going to end it, according to this verse. I want you to turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is also a, a, an explanation of this problem in light of eternity is how he gives it. And the psalmist is perplexed as he begins this passage. This is a passage that talks about that very question that so many have asked. How could an all-loving, all-good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? He's asking the same questions. Look what he says. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From the callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Until he entered in, it was perplexing until he entered into the presence of God. 
with the people of God. That's when we gather together to worship God, we get an eternal focus instead of a temporal perspective because we're worshiping the eternal one. And it says when he was in his presence, it it came clear to him. He understood their final destiny. From an eternal perspective, judgment will come. From an eternal perspective, as we see in, in Revelation 21, 4, no more pain, no more suffering. It's only for a time. Now, for many, 70, 80, 90 years, it could be horrible for some. But then, in light of eternity, just imagine it. In light of eternity, a billion years from now, we're all going to be hanging out. You know, I'm going to say, Dale, you remember what it was like to have pain? You know, I, I really can't remember, <laughs> right? From an eternal perspective, this is what it's going to be like. In the meantime, he gives us this hope, and that's what gets us through. But therein lies the question. Are you an existentialist? Remember the definition? Or are you future grace focused? You can tell by your lifestyle, you know. Listen to what John Piper says in his book, Future Grace. He says, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself, Psalm 63.3, which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. All that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without him. And so God gives us those tastes of his goodness, those glimpses of his glory, with the sure promise of the full meal of fellowship with God coming in the end. That's what breaks the power of sin in our lives. But are you living for now? Or are you living for God and longing for his return? Are you living in hope? Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, we pray just like the one man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. We like to be honest with you because you know our hearts anyway. And we thank you that we can come to you and we can talk to you no matter what. That you'll never push us away. You always welcome us. And we confess that life is hard in this world, and for some, a lot harder than for others. And so we come and we look to you and we ask, please help us again. Help us to become focused on this hope. Focused on this hope of your return in such a way that it actually helps us live in the present for others instead of ourselves. 
that we become others-centered and we actually do make a difference in this world at bringing peace to certain areas and to certain people's lives instead of scrambling after peace for our own self. Help us, oh God, to see Jesus, to always fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to long for his return in this ultimate day when you will recreate the heavens and the earth and you will come down and you will dwell with us. Help us to think of those that time and that it would make a difference in our lives now. And if there is someone here this morning who does not know you and they don't know this hope, I pray that you'd open up their eyes and their hearts to receive you even today. We ask these things in Jesus' name.